Hello, and welcome to another virtual author event at the Poison Pen Bookstore. I'm John Charles, and today the Poison Pen is delighted to have with us virtually a dazzling quartet of cozy authors, Cordy Abbott, Connie Berry, Trish Esden, and Tracy Gardner, who are here to talk about their new antiques-related mysteries. But before we begin, I would like to let those tuning in know that the Poison Pen does have copies of all of our authors' new books, and we would be happy to hold one or more for you or put them in the mail. Just give us a call at the Poison Pen or go online, and we can connect you with these truly fabulously entertaining new mysteries. And now I'd like to welcome Connie, Cordy, Tracy, and Trish. Hello. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Thank you for coming and visiting us virtually today. My first question for authors is as a reader, and I know there are other readers who are always fascinated by who the person was before they became a writer. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself prior to becoming a published author? And why don't we start with you, Connie? Yeah, I, I have had sort of big segments in my life. So as an adult, um, I spent about 20 years raising my two boys and did a lot of volunteer work when I did that, but I was able to stay home, which is lovely. And then for the next 25 years, I taught theology. Oh. And then, uh, and now I don't know if I'll have 25 years or not, but I am now um, a mystery writer. So very mm -hmm. different, very different aspects of life, but each one has been wonderful and I'm enjoying them. That's great. What about you, Cordy? I was in corporate human resources um, for about 100 years, and um, I knew I didn't want to, I couldn't handle the corporate life anymore. And so when I moved to Washington to get married, um, I just started writing. So, Tracy, who were you before you became a writer? I uh, still work as a nurse now. I was a daughter of two teachers and so grew up, you know, with books everywhere reading. And I think the reading just, you know, naturally for me progressed to writing, but my parents were very practical and wanted me to make sure that I would pick a, a career field that would be um, kind of a seamless transition from college to, to work life. So I became a nurse and uh, and then started writing in my, well, I'd always written, but started trying to get published in my 40s. So. What about you, Trish? Um, I'm a lifelong New Englander. Uh, I've slowly kind of migrated north and I now live up near the Canadian border in Vermont. Um, I've always had an interest. I've actually been an antique dealer since my teens. Um, and at the same time, I've been involved in the plant industry, uh, flowers uh, in various ways. I went to college for plant and soil science. Um, and then eventually I didn't go back home after college because I kind of got interested in guys. And uh, <laughs> I, yeah, my husband and I eventually, both of us loved antiques. We opened, bought a country store that was built in the 1830s and actually had been closed for a long time. And we ran business, gift business and a florist shop. Um, and at that time we did about 30 weddings. Every, uh, and when I hit my mid forties, I kind of decided if I was interested in writing, which I'd always been interested in, um, 
I, I have an older sister who's a playwright who got into that at the age of 50. And she said to me, you know, if you want to get into writing, it's sort of now or never, don't wait till you're 50. Um, so th that's how I got back into writing, why I was running the country store business with my husband. And then I retired and now I still deal antiques, but I don't have any customers in my, we don't have to run a store. I don't run a retail business. Let's um, go ahead and move on to your initial path to publication. What was that like? Were you an overnight success? Did it take many months of preparation? Why don't we continue with you, Trish? What was your getting your first book published like? Well, I actually submitted to agents quite a number of novels before I got my first agent. Um, but then I had a lot of success. My first agent sold two series to Kensington. Um, I'm actually published as Pat Esden, I, uh, as fantasy author, I write sexy contemporary fantasy, um, and my agent left the industry, and I decided I wanted to write about mysteries and change genres, and at the time I changed agents. Um, so I changed agents, and that's when I got my current uh, contract with uh, Crooked Lane Publishing for my antique mystery series. Hmm. What about you, Tracy? From what I understand, you initially didn't think writing would be a career. So how did you get your first book published? Uh, I started, I had always written short stories and, you know, little things, but I started writing a women's fiction when my son was uh, about six months old uh, um, while I was working too. I don't, I must have been crazy, <laughs> but um it took a long time to write that. And then once it was done, I, I thought this is gonna be easy. I'm just gonna send this out. They'll wanna publish it right away and I'm all set. <laughs> and um, it didn't exactly work like that. It took me, it took more than a few years to get traction to, you know, get an agent who believed in me and, and would um, work hard in my corner. And then uh, in 2018, I, um, and by then my son was 16 years old. <laughs> so in 2018, I got my first uh, contract and that was with Hallmark Publishing. How about you, Cordy? Well, it took me 10 years to be an overnight success. Um, <laughs> that first book took, took 10 years because I would write a little bit, put it down for a few months, write a little bit. And then I joined Sisters in Crime. And I realized if you're if you're going to be a professional, see yourself as a professional, you need to be in a professional organization. And I did that. And um, so it was just really a shift in my thinking. And then pretty soon after that, um, I got a contract with uh, with a small publisher and just kept going from there. So that's great. Connie. Yeah, I'm I'm a little bit like like Cordy uh, and like a lot of people because my my first book um, there's never been a manuscript that has been so revised and polished within an inch of its life as that one. And then once you get a contract, you realize you, you don't have ten years anymore to to work on the next novel. But um, I I had a master's in English, and so um, one thing that 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 was good about that is that when I was writing, I I. I knew my book wasn't ready. I knew it wasn't ready. I didn't always know why. And so I would just say to people, just tell me what's wrong and I'll fix it. 
And people had been telling me some things that they thought, and I was kind of not willing to do it. When I retired from my job, I decided it was now or never. I did a massive revision. I changed everything almost that could possibly be changed. And uh, I finished on January 1st of 2000, I don't know, 17 or 18, went to a writer's conference, met my editor at Crooked Lane Books, and she loved it, gave me a contract. I got an agent. So, um, so I never got rejections, but only because I, I knew enough not to put it out there. <laughs> That's fascinating. Um, okay, what can you tell us about the latest addition to your series, your new book? And we'll start with you, Connie. Uh, my latest one is called The Shadow of Memory. It was just nominated for an Edgar Award. I'm absolutely thrilled about that. Um, it takes place in the English county of Suffolk. My main character is an American antiques dealer with a gift for solving crimes. And uh, she is uh, asked to appraise uh, some fine antiques in a former Victorian mental institution on the Suffolk coast. Among the antiques is a 15th century oil painting attributed to the Dutch master Jan van Eyck. But when um, a retired ins uh, detective inspector is found dead, Kate realizes that there was more going on in the halls of that sanatorium than just fine art. And so um, she embarks on a journey to find out, is the painting uh, real? Is it a forgery? Um, and why was the detective inspector killed? Hmm. Cordy, what is your latest about? Um, well, Dead Men Don't Decorate is the first in the series. And right now I'm at our uh, second home in Lewis, Delaware. And the book is set in, in a, a fictionalized version of Alexandria, Virginia. But here in Lewis, we have someone who is really the meanest man in town. And he is a, a restaurant owner. And everybody knows that. If you just say, oh, what about X? Everybody knows him. Everybody has a story about him. Just He's just off the wall. But the food is great. And so in this book, the meanest man in town is found murdered. And, but unfortunately in, in um, the antique store that my protagonist just bought. And she doesn't want her store to be known as that place where the murder happened. And uh, so her investigation starts from there. But um, I hope he doesn't ever find out because I do like his food. <laughs> uh, Tracy, what's your new book like? Uh, I, and I was gonna say to Cordy, I would, I would love to know if he eventually ever does make that connection. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I don't know how we, how it would change. He's already so mean. <laughs> um, my new book is Peril at Pennington Manor. It's the second in the series that started with Ruby Red Herring, and um, it Peril at Pennington Manor is is, and I didn't realize this until I was about halfway through, but it's kind of my um, my take on what an adult Nancy Drew book might read like. Um, it takes place in a modern day castle in the Hudson Valley and <clears throat> involves an antiques appraiser, my main character, Avery Ayers, who has taken over her family business after her parents were, uh, were killed. And so she has to come home um, from the life that she built and take over the business and finish raising her teenage sister 
So book two, um, she's in a, a little bit of a better headspace when it starts and she secures a job for her company appraising an entire castle's worth of antiques um, for Duke Nicholas Pennington, who is um, her Aunt Midge's good friend. So when she shows up on the first day with her team to begin appraising, uh, they're halfway through sort of getting into some of the pieces that they're looking at and it's a very extensive collection. And I think in the book, they're, they're leaving, they're getting ready to wrap it up and leave when a body um, is found. And um, she is very curious, very intrigued. Uh, and the thing that kind of keeps her involved rather than stepping back and, and, and I thought about this and being like, well, I, I can't, I don't, we can't do this job. Something's happening here. Number one, she's good friends with the, really intelligent, helpful detective who won't not help her. And number two, um, she's invested. This is the biggest job her team has ever had. So she feels like she can't walk away. Um, and of course she gets pulled into the, the mystery from there. Trish, what about your new book? Um, my, the Art of the Decoy um, is the first book of my series. The next book comes out in April. Uh, my series starts when my main character, E. Brown, comes home. It's, it takes place in northern Vermont, generally in the area where I live on the Canadian border. Um, but she comes home after her mother is arrested for art forgery. Uh, and she hopes to rebuild the family business and kind of give it a fresh start on the side. She's also interested in rekindling her romance that she had with her probation officer a number of years earlier when she was arrested for stolen goods. So, you know, it's not gonna be that easy for her to reestablish, because in small towns, when you've had crimes, whether they're justified or not, it's not gonna be easy to get past it. Uh, she starts off when she's invited to an antique roadshow sort of event. Um, she's a folk art expert and she gets her hands on this a shorebird decoy and she realizes it's something very special and she manages to get an invitation to this hoarder's farmhouse that this decoy came out of. Um, and it's right up on the French on the border between Quebec and Vermont, which is a heavily French Canadian part of Vermont. And I part of my reason for writing the book where I did is I wanted to deal with the French Canadian culture in Vermont. Uh, and he's an old farmer. Uh, I call him a hoarder in the book, but it's just more that his house is just filled up with stuff because many years ago when his wife died, he just sort of gave up and the whole farm is dilapidated. But up in the attic of this place, she finds a decoy and shorebird waterfowl collection of decoys by what she soon realizes is a very famous French Canadian family of carvers and, and artists. Um, but things quickly go south. There's no deaths right in the forefront of my novel, but the collection disappears. And with her family's reputation, she's going to be in trouble. So she manages to convince the woman, uh, the uh, daughter-in-law of this old guy who owns the farm to give her five days to find the collection and return it. Um, and the woman honestly doesn't believe that she didn't steal. So that, that's where the story takes off is there. Each of your um, books deals with antiques or has antiques as a theme or a hook, 
what made you decide this is how I want to anchor my my new series? What about antiques spoke to you as a writer? And I'll throw that open to whoever wants to start. Well, I am one. Does that count? <laughs> Not quite. Um, no, it's just uh, bringing... Uh, writing about objects that have a story and have a history and have traveled through time is is just fascinating. I have a lot of stories from years of working with antiques, so I, I wanted to be able to draw on that. Um, I've also, back a few decades ago, was an absolute fanatic over the Lovejoy mystery series. I like the TV yeah. series. I'm, the books I like, though they are just definitely not politically correct nowadays. Yeah. Um, so I thought, okay, what if we took those books, put them in America, gave them an American woman protagonist, a 30-year-old woman, um, and maybe that's why my main character woman is a little bit the way she is. I can't say I copied the series, but that series is in my heart um, and my own love of antiques. I don't, it just kind of an adventure I wanted to go on. And I, I was a little bit like the, the hoarder person in your book, Trish, because that's the house I grew up in. My parents weren't really hoarders, but they were very close. Um, they were high-end antique stealers. Uh, we had stuff in our house that used to scare my friends. I found that out later. When my husband made his first trip to our house, he seriously considered whether I was, you know, from a family that was going to be so odd that he wasn't going to be able to, to make it. It was perfectly, you know, perfectly normal to me, of course. You know, we had uh, a life-size bust of Marie Antoinette in our living room for a while. And I mean, we just had all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, and and I didn't appreciate it at the time, but but that's the world that I grew up in. My parents were just, my my dad was, a, was an engineer. That's how he made money because they didn't really make a lot of money on the antiques because they bought more than they sold. And, uh, but, but I used to go on buying trips with them and I, I worked in the shop and uh, I, you know, that's just the world that I knew. And my mom was a wonderful researcher. She loved, like, like Cordy said, each object has a history. And so a lot of her, um, sayings actually made it into my book and one of them is that one time I was complaining about why was it that all my friends could have new furniture and all of our stuff had to be old and my mom said well our things have a history that's so much more interesting mm -hmm. so um I thought it was just the logical place it's the world I know I had tons of stories from my childhood and, and I'm living with some of the antiques that my parents had in the house where I was growing up. Uh, and I would say for me, uh, and Connie, I love the, your background there. I'm sure you, you obviously have some antiques right there. Um, I am a little bit of a fish out of water, at least when I started writing this series, because I did not know very much about uh, the antiques world. So I did a lot of research, but what made me get interested in it is if you think about, or at least if, you know, as I was thinking about what an antique truly is, they all kind of come with their own little backstory. They all kind of come with their own 
little mystery that, um, and you know, some of them I'm sure as the antiques dealer in our group could probably tell us, you know, some sometimes the mysteries attached to those antiques aren't very interesting, but sometimes if you think about the kinds of antiques, and I think some of what is in our books too, um, it's just a great, it's a great gateway for all kinds of interesting stories. I think it was particularly um, brilliant on all of your parts because I see a lot of parallels between when you're dealing with antiques, you're trying to find out the history, as you said, of it, um, the provenance, any flaws. You're doing that kind of research that a detective would do or an amateur sleuth would do in a case. So that the, that skill set kind of transfers. Yeah, I, I, I described Kate's mom as near Sherlockian in her ability to, and, and that was my mom, truthfully. Let's talk a little bit about the research involved in your newest book. Um, Connie, yours is set in a sanit sanitarium. And when I first hear that word, I get a totally different picture from the book's setting in your books because it's very almost luxurious. Yeah. Um, if you know anything about mental institutions, actually in the Victorian era, they actually called them lunatic asylums. And the the government agency that was over them was called the the Council on Lunacy. So that was really what they were called. But but it, but if you were poor, you got sent to these horrible places that use shackles and um, I mean just horrible things. If you were very wealthy, you could stay home and have somebody watch you all the time. But uh, a new French theory made its way to England, and that was that. Um, for people who have temporarily lost the balance of their mind, if you put them in beautiful surroundings, like a, like a five-star hotel or a country house hotel, beautiful grounds, you know, songbirds in the hallways, they could bring their pets if they had a, uh, you know, a maid or a butler, they could bring that with, they had bowling alleys and Turkish baths and everything that you'd ever want. And just the surroundings could get you back so your mind was balanced again. People had to pay fees for this. And so there are actually these institutions all over the, the UK that were built um, in the Victorian era. There's one called Craig House in Edinburgh, and uh, there's one called Virginia Water in Sussex. Um, but now they're being turned into upscale residences. So I was inspired by that. So mine is fictional, but it was a Victorian mental institution run along the lines of the French theory. What kinds of research surprised you while you were working on your book, Corey? Um, let me see. I guess the fact that since uh, antiques and collectibles, we have an emotional response to them and, and, it's, and we have that story. Sometimes that story isn't true. Okay. And when it's not, we feel um, it's more than just buying an effective product. Uh, and so when I started thinking through all of that, um, I think that is that was the most eye opening. Um, uh, but I, you know, I have people that I talk to um, about antiques, and um, mostly I wanted 
her her story is very different. And I have I was so uh, I mean you can we can all kind of we know when we're in an antique store, you know, it has like the floor feels a certain way and it it smells a certain way and it's it's great. You just know it. And I but I wanted hers to be different and it's a decorating center and an antique store. Um, so it was kind of having to unlearn some things and change things around. It's interesting. What about you, Tracy? Yours is a new series, the launch to a series. What did you find while doing your research that surprised you about antiques? Uh, I learned I learned everything I didn't know. <laughs> I learned a lot in that, um, honestly, when I started doing the research for book one, for Ruby, I didn't even fully understand that there's a difference between an antiques appraiser and an antiques dealer. Um, so that was interesting to me. And, and then getting into um, one of the, one of my main characters team deals with an auction house in Manhattan um, to kind of like buy and sell, uh, not always high-end antiques, but some, so it's, it's just a whole different world that I was not familiar with. Um, I'm from a, I'm from the Midwest, and my most of my life has been raising my kids and working as a nurse. So it was very eye-opening. It was, it was a big education for me. What about you, Trish? You actually have dealt in the business side. Do you have resources or books or things that you find you're constantly falling back on to get information? Um. Yes. Um, as far as the antiques go, I actually, for me, probably I had more research in the area of the police investigations and the relationship to law enforcement, especially since I'm on the Canadian border and part of the crime in my story takes place in Quebec. Um, and part of it takes place in the United States. So I was dealing with uh, the state police in Vermont and the FBI and with the Canadian police and the border police and the local sheriffs. And I think for me, a lot of my research and ongoing has to do with how they interact because it's different from state to state and from location to location. Um, I, I know lots of dealers. Uh, so when I had to get into nitty gritty of her trying to figure out where these decoys had come from, because there's uh, for example, Toronto Harbor birds, the, the shorebird legs are different. Uh, they have two legs wrapped in wire and cloth, as opposed to birds that are made in Cape Cod or the United States. Those sort of things were easier for me to research and sort of a research of love that I, I naturally would do if I bought an item. Um, and I know what it feels like to touch these things and smell these things. This is something I do all the time, even if I'm not doing the high-end things. But the law enforcement aspect um, and I actually, the book is coming out in April. I had uh, deals with uh, traumatic brain injuries um, and art therapy and a whole different area. So for me, sometimes it's the area away from the antiques that is the most interesting uh, research for me. I actually got into the crypto coin and, and the e-art in my next book so I mean it's a real different realm because even though you're doing antiques if you're doing antiques and art you have modern art which is a whole mm. different area is that electronic art like the nfts or whatever they call them yeah that that's dealt with in my 
next book is coming out in April to a, to a small degree. But I felt, I honestly felt if you're writing a book and a person is an art antique dealer now, that's something you have to be aware of. Even if you yourself are not dealing in it, you're going to bump up against it. Let's switch gears a little bit, a little bit and talk about your writing process, because I know for people who aren't writers, the idea of completing a book can be somewhat daunting. Um, but sometimes if you're writing mysteries, it's a little maybe seem to be a little bit easier because there's a structure. You have a crime, you have suspects, you have clues, but that can really vary from author to author. So can you talk a little bit about your own process when it comes to writing your mysteries? And we'll start with you, Trish. You know, I thought about this a lot because I don't write a physical detailed outline like a lot of people, but from reading, I grew up, I absolutely loved um, mid-century Gothic novels. So I think oh. I internalized a lot of the plot structure. Mm -hmm. So I think that plot structure is in my head. Um, I, I usually can hit the word count and hit the plot points pretty good. Um, so my process, well, you can see back there, I had problems with the book I'm working on, the middle section. So those index cards are after I've drafted it. And that's, I put the, I went through and put on index cards. So that's about as detailed as my outlining gets. It's, it's more of an after the first draft. The first draft is internalized. Then after that, I, I have to have physical cards to look at and move around. And I can, usually by the time I write the cards, I know where the problems are. So I guess I'm messy and a little disorganized, but I think inside I really am organized. <laughs> what about you, Tracy? What is your process from starting a book to completing it like? I would say I'm a lot like Trish in in how I um, how I draft a book. I um, I don't when I start and probably into the second or third chapter. I don't have any kind of a, an outline. Um, I kind of think of it in terms of, I have the beginning place and where everything is gonna, where everything is gonna wrap up. I always know the ending, um, which surprisingly is not always how, how writers write books, but I know beginning and end, a lot of times when I start a book, I have no idea how they're gonna get there, but that's the fun part for me. Um, it also causes me a lot of extra work sometimes when <laughs> the characters kind of take over and it goes in a direction that I didn't plan. Um, but then when I hit mid second or beginning of the third chapter, I just, I do what's in my head, I call a chapter breakdown where I kind of plot things out to keep the pacing right um, as far as what's gonna happen at, at each point in the book. And just little tiny notes, just to cue myself, this has to happen in this chapter, this has to, um, and by the time I'm done, that that little document is a huge mess. There's all kinds of extra notes, there's reminders to myself, make sure you go back and plant this clue here, but it, it works for me. Um, I'm a little bit envious of the, the writers that I see that have the beautiful storyboard with you know, all the, the mapping and the plot points and everything, it's just, that looks amazing to me, but I, I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Cordy? I'm a big outliner. 
Um, but I, I, I never think in terms of plot points. I think in terms of days, because I use time uh, to create tension. Because um, it's not much fun if you, you know, oh yeah, a month ago someone was murdered. I think I'll work on it now. No, it's, there needs to be uh, some kind of time constraint there. Uh, so I spent a lot of time uh, outlining and, and then I start writing. And uh, a part of it is the publisher wants that. I mean, they they start on the cover and the back matter so early that, that they need um, a, a short synopsis to start on that. Honey, where do you fall in the writing process? I think I fall in the middle um, because I um, I actually use what I think of as a four act structure, um, but really it's if you look at books on story structure and it's a three act structure, there's always a middle point in the in the second act. So I just divide it out. But I I have like roadmaps. I, I have like if I were going to drive from New York City to California. And I had places I was going to stay overnight all mapped out, but I don't know how I'm going to get from point A to point B and from point B to point C. So I'm kind of plotting and I'm kind of pantsing and uh, I usually know who's going to be the bad guy in the end, but in the book I'm currently working on, which is book five in the series, um, I actually just changed that because I think it's more interesting. So I, I do let things go off in directions and, and Tracy, you're right then, it, you know, sometimes it wastes a lot of time, but I also keep a spreadsheet. So as I'm writing, I think in terms of scenes. So if, if someone is very daunted by the, the idea of, of writing a whole novel of 90,000 words, if you just think about writing a, one scene at a time, then you just build them together. But um, my, uh, my spreadsheet is something that I do, and, and then it helps me when I go back to revise to find out where things happened and did I spend too much time in a certain area, things like that. That's a great idea. When we're talking about mysteries, I think a lot of emphasis is often placed on the plot, the twists, the characters, but setting can be an important ingredient in a mystery novel. Can each of you kind of talk a little bit about the setting for your book? I know Tracy, yours is a small town, I believe, if that's correct. And you kind of um, show a different side that maybe people who have not lived in small towns might not realize. Yeah. Um... Thank you. Yeah, I mine is in a small town in upstate New York called Lilac Grove, but I did also um, I wanted to have that kind of the action of a big city, and um, also selfishly I love New York and I wanted to write about New York, <laughs> so I kind of I most of I would say most of the most of the book does take place in Lilac Grove, but there are a few key scenes maybe where the action is a little higher that take place in the middle of Manhattan. Um, and I think it it works well for Avery, for the main character, because she, when she's in the city, she loves it. It's a completely different experience for her, but she's always really happy and relieved to come home to her, her nice little cozy setting and her nice little town. And I think that's, that's pretty, um, for a lot of people, that's a universal feeling. 
Trish, you mentioned that yours is set near the Canadian border of your series. Um, were you doing that hoping to get Canadian readers or what prompted you to? Um, I live up here and I oh. did a lot of buying. So I'm actually, and I, um, for my plant business, I used to actually uh, travel and import stuff across the Canadian border. Oh. Um, so I know a lot, I have a lot of friends up there. Uh, and I really wanted to show Vermont, Vermont is very picturesque, but I wanted to show a little more real view of Vermont than just the picturesque. So in my novels, I usually, actually all of them show a contrast between like the touristy ski areas um, or the wealthy communities and the farm communities. And I really, uh, Franklin County, which is where the county is, does is probably more down to earth Vermont. We have old hippies that were here uh, that came in the 60s during the Vietnam War because it was near the Canadian border. Uh, we have, you know, the French Canadians, we have Native Americans in this area. Um, it's a part of Vermont that I don't think always gets a lot of, um, gets shown a lot. It, you know, we have covered bridges, but you're just as likely to see a, you know, someone driving their tractor or team of horses across the covered bridge because it's the short way to get to the field. Um, you know, so that's really what I wanted to show. Uh, was real Vermont, modern day Vermont. And, and the contrast between uh, the way people view Vermont, the way it is, like, like most, like which is what most communities are. <clears throat> That's fascinating. Cordy, I think you said your uh, setting is based on Alexandria, Virginia for the books. Yeah. Um, do you try to stick as close as possible to the real Alexandria or do you prefer being able to make a few changes for story's sake. I stay pretty close to it as far as the names of the streets. Uh, one change that I made was in real life, the police station is nowhere near um, Old Town, downtown Old Town and the courthouse. And it was just, it didn't make sense to have them going to, you know, driving up Duke Street, take a left at the McDonald, you know, over and over and over again. So I put those together. So I take I take a few liberties, but I but I really stick to the the same street names and um and I I think I have the vibe right. Um but Alexandria is is a pretty big city, but it's close to Washington and it's more than just Old Town. And so I try to bring in uh something about the other neighborhoods uh in Alexandria also. Great. Connie, in your series, you have an American going to England. Um, how do you make sure you get that English kind of setting details right? Because we are two countries separated by a common language or what it happens. It's very true. Yeah. yeah um, well, one benefit of having an American in England is that if mistakes are made, I blame them on her because she's an American. She doesn't know anything. Um, but I, I have been an Anglophile my whole life. My, uh, my father's parents were Scottish. They came over as adults. And so that's what I grew up with, hearing them talk. They, they really brought Scotland with them. They, they were in the United States, but you know it could, it could have been Scotland, mm -hmm. really. All their friends were Scottish. Every, you know, all the food when we would go visit them, the first thing we do is run up to Toronto because you could only buy, you know, good stuff up there because it was part of the UK. 
Um, so that was how I grew up. And then during college, I went to school at St. Clair's College at Oxford. And I just, I just really fell under the spell of, of the British Isles. I've spent a lot of time there. My husband and I are actually heading over there in March again. I'm very excited. Um, I love the villages. So my book is set in a fictional village in Suffolk called Longbarston. And Suffolk is one of those parts of England that people don't usually know about because it's not on the tourist uh, track, although I think it should be. Um, but it, it is really England the way you think of it in your mind. It's a very, it, it was the old center of the Anglo-Saxon culture. Um, just, I mean, all of England is historic, but Suffolk is, is just very, very special. And actually they are now starting to film a lot of uh, television series in Suffolk because it, it's just time passed it by. And so it still looks like it, it might have in the Middle Ages. But I, I really love small villages. I, when my husband and I go there, we get off the airplane, get a car and, and head away from London. I, I like London too, but I'd rather be in the countryside. And England is full of eccentrics. They, they really prize eccentrics. And I do too. My dad was a little bit of an eccentric, but in the most charming possible way. Everyone loved him, but he was just unique. And um, in the villages, just listening to people talk, seeing what they like, seeing what matters to them, the food that they want to eat, um, that is where I get all my inspiration. Just, you know, kind of like Miss Marple, there's, you know, nothing like an English village for uh, evil. <laughs> That's true. Um, we've talked about you as writers. Let's um, go a different direction and talk about you as readers because you write mysteries. I'm guessing that you're all big mystery readers. Who are some of the authors that got you hooked as a reader on mysteries? I'll throw it open to whoever wants to go. Agatha Christie. That's uh, started reading her as a teenager, and I just read everything. I think all of us, um, you know, are pretty much the same way. We we all grew up on Agatha Christie. But when I was in junior high school, I used to go down to the library in my town and just go up and down the aisles, and I found P.G. Woodhouse, and I. <laughs> For all I knew, no one but me knew about him. <laughs> and I started to read it. And I thought, I have never heard anything so funny in my entire life, but funny in a way that I've, I'd never heard. And mm -hmm. I just absolutely fell in love with the British sense of humor, the, the irony, the understatement, um, the, the silliness of P.G. Woodhouse. Um, and right now, honestly, I, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but I read almost all British crime fiction. You know, I love Ellie Griffiths. I, I love Anthony Horowitz. I love Anne Cleave. Um, I, I just can't get enough. Uh, Susan Hill, um, wonderful series. Um, I, I just love to do it. And part of it is because that's where I want to spend time. So if I can't be there in person, I can be there in my head. Great. I, I was going to say, I wasn't an Agatha Christie or Nancy Drew person, as, as I said earlier. I can remember the first 
mystery type novel I found. It was the same thing. I was in the library in junior high and I got down. It was always, how come the good stuff's always on the bottom shelf in the library? Mm -hmm. And I found a book. I remember this day. It was called Sons of the Wolf and it was by Barbara, Barbara Michaels. Michaels. <laughs> and I had no idea of that she, you know, was what she wrote later in life. But that book, I'm a, I dog-eared it. I bought a copy at the local bookstore. Um, and I absolutely, it just like opened my eyes to a whole new thing. Then I went to Victoria Holt from there. Mm -hmm. uh, those were probably my earliest mysteries. Um, and even when I came, started writing in my 40s, uh, it was books like The 13th uh, Tale, that drew me back to reading and writing. I, I went through a period of my life, I didn't have time to read very much. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually the other one that really got me going, which is way off in left field was Gollum and the Genie. Uh, I just <laughs> love that book, I, but it's that tone, it's the Gothic tone and just some beautiful writing. I love writing. I, uh, uh, so I, I guess I come at mysteries from another way and probably my love of mysteries is from television. The, the uh, as far as the detective side of, of novels. I don't know if I'm supposed to admit that, but mm, <laughs> I guess we could like TV too. <laughs> There's some good series out there. Tracy, I'm going to guess it was Nancy Drew that got you started because you wrote an article about her and her appeal. Yeah, I Nancy Drew definitely got me started. My My dad was an English teacher and I would you know, he'd come home from work. Um, he taught driver's ed two days a week after work, but then in the evenings, he was always grading paper. He taught high school English. Um, and I just spent a lot of time in his study devouring all of his, because most of those books were his, Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys. And I'm, I'm sure I read every single one of them. Um, and then kind of transitioned to Agatha Christie, found Edgar Allan Poe, in uh, in middle school, but I remember the book. It was um, it was kind of what set me on the course of like loving the Mary Higgins Clarks and the Danielle Steels, uh, Flowers in the Attic, B.C. Andrews. Yeah. I think I was probably I was too young to read it. I was probably like eleven, mm -hmm. and it just that book just pulled me in. You can't put that down. And then my mom found it on my dresser and was very upset because I'm not old enough to read that. So I wasn't allowed to read it, but I found a way anyway. And I, I think um, that kind of just opened a, opened a door to my love of, um, like I said, Mary Higgins Clark, Danielle Steele. And then, uh, and then I fell in love with Stephen King, um, which is still a mystery, different, different genre. Um, I absolutely can't write in that genre, but I love reading that too. So, can I, I show you? I was going to say, I should add one thing here really quick that's a little demented is since I'm an antique dealer, I also sell books. Mm -hmm. And I just bought a lot of about 50 Nancy Drews. And I actually read Nancy Drew now because it's like <laughs> reading a short story. So, yeah. you know, I came really late to Nancy Drew. <laughs> well, I have, this is, was one of my books as a kid, and I really hate to show off my highbrow literature taste, uh, but it's a mystery where Annette Funicello is the amateur detective as a teenager. <laughs> and, and it's about, um, 
she buys a, a, a very expensive prom dress and she lives with her aunt and uncle for some reason. I think her parents were in a car wreck because that, that was pretty much a trope. And then she has to go and help out on a dude ranch to pay for this prom dress. <laughs> And um, so this was, it was, I, th I think what we're all saying is we're not interested in the heroine that gets tied up on the train tracks and the guy has to come and save her. We're really more interested in, in the woman having agency and, yeah. and solving the crimes and mystery, uh, especially with um, amateur sleuths really lends itself to that. That's great. Um, one of the things that I learned in an article that you had written, Trish, was that there are different things that have value in the antiques world, and I never would have guessed that New England cemeteries were a source for thieves. Oh yeah, oh very much so, um, and it's it's really it's a crime that I I dislike, and most honest dealers won't buy. Uh, recently, there was a big uh, stealing of the of the stars that they put um, mm -hmm. for veterans. And I see these things some, sometimes come up for sale, and I'm glad that nowadays law enforcement actually can monitor it uh, because they do. They can go into rural rural cemeteries, which are not have no security, and mm -hmm. wipe out the fences, cast iron fences, and things like that. Um, and mm -hmm. they'll take pieces of, of marble, like balls of marble or gravestones. Um, and the other thing that's weird about New England it, that is and we've run across this a number of times is that they're gravestones in the basements of some houses mm. uh, and I think sometimes these gravestones maybe I don't know, I really know the history were they done maybe uh, ahead of time because when people could afford them and we know bodies were not put in the ground in the winter mm. uh, there I've one of our local funeral homes has several gravestones like sitting out in the parking lot uh, that they were given uh, but I, that's, hmm. yeah, cemetery stuff shows up where it shouldn't be a lot. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, Cordy, you worked on a, some type of degree or postgraduate it's a, program. Postgraduate certification in art crime and um, cultural heritage theft. Yeah. Are art crimes a separate type of crime? I I feel like it is. And uh, as Lane Stone, I write an art crime thriller series. And um, so the people that are involved tend to be a little different than your regular mugger or smash and grab uh, person. So, and of course, um, um, you know, you're talking about very high price points, so. So those um, characters we see in movies or television, the obsessed collector who buys the $10 million painting just so, he can have it in a room by himself and gloat over it. That's really kind of a real thing. It really is. It really is. Um, yeah, but it's like $150 million art, you know, mm -hmm. uh, piece of art. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I can't see the point in something you, you can't brag about. You can't, you can't show it to your friends, but you have it in your basement and you can look at it anytime you want. So... All of you have now published. Um, I always think it's interesting. What have you learned about the business of publishing as authors that you wish someone had told you when you were first starting out? Well, I don't know when I was first starting out, but I accepted one contract that I shouldn't have accepted because it wasn't right for me. Oh. Uh, I accepted one contract 
which was ebooks first. And I think we all have different personal goals. My goal is I like bookstores. I really like small independent bookstores. I really like libraries. And that's where I want to see my books. Uh, it's just my personal goal. And when you're published ebook first, uh, it makes it very hard uh, because you're not going to get into those places easily. Um, you know, you have paperback books and they just aren't, they aren't there particularly for libraries. Uh, and so that's one thing I think that if you have an agent or you're getting a contract with a publisher, you really need to think about your personal goals and discuss with them distribution of the books. Um, so that's, that's one place I wish I had done something different. I think I've learned um, three things. And one is that it takes a lot longer uh, from the time that you turn your manuscript, manuscript in until the time it's, it's actually published. I had no idea it took that long. Um, but two other things that I've learned are um, that the publisher has really has the right to name your book. No. Um, usually they they let the author give a lot of feedback. We um, we all share share a publisher uh, and they're very good about that. But um, I didn't realize that the, the title of a book tells the reader something about the book. So if it's a cozy, it's going to have a little pun part probably in it. If it's a thriller, it's probably going to be real short, one word, two words. Um, historicals tend to have a little bit longer. So that's so important. And um, the other thing is that the cover is so important. Um, and I'm just glad that there are professional people uh, who know what they're doing because, again, the cover has to appeal to the kind of reader who's going to love your book. I guess I've learned that nothing stays the same. I mean, this business has, has changed so much and it will always change. So um, don't get set in your ways. Just be ready for what technology brings our way next. That's good advice too. I think... Um, what I wish I had known when I started is the amount of, um, if someone could have told me just to, to, to buckle up and hang in, <laughs> because it does take much longer, not for everybody, but it, you know, it can take a while. And I think to even get to the point where you're publishing, you're doing a self-publishing and publishing your own book, um, which sounds daunting to me, or if you're traditionally published, requires grit. And I think um, just knowing that ahead of time could have been useful, but also um, it, writers write. And I, I did, I tried to quit at one point before I actually got my first contract. I'm glad I you did, did quit. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. I, I did. I told my agent to take me off her website and I said, I just, I, I couldn't, um, I had, you know, a decent amount of rejection and I was getting nowhere, but even though I quit, I, I didn't stop writing. You can't, mm -hmm. I can't not write. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think just tenacity, grit, you know, that's I, about it. I love the uh, quotation. I don't know who said it, but they said, you are not a writer because you write, you write because you're a writer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like 
rapidly um, coming to a close, but before we run out of time, can you tell us what's next for you as an author and how readers can learn more about you and your books, what social media platforms you like? And we'll start with you, Connie. Um, well, I'm on Facebook. I, I have a website, which is ConnieBerry.com. I have a monthly newsletter that I put out. You can sign up for that. If you're interested. Um, what's next for me? I have um, an ebook novella that is coming out uh, in October. And then I'm, uh, I, I have book five in the series that will come out in probably spring of 2024. Cordy, what's next for you? Well, as, as Lane Stone, the first book in the art thriller series, uh, The Big Picture, came out last May. That's The Collector. And the next one will come out this May. And it is The Canvas. And um, then I'm just waiting to see what happens with, with the uh, Old Town Mysteries. So, but I'm on uh, lanestone.com or lanestonebooks.com and cordyabbott.com. And I have a quarterly newsletter for each. And, um, and I would love for people to sign up for that. Tracy? I, um, I also have a newsletter attached to my website. My website is tracygardnerbino.com. And I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, um, as far as what's next for me, I have a, um, I'm kind of uh, hopping genres and I have a women's fiction that comes out at the end of this year. There's, I don't have a date yet, but um, that's with Alcove Press and it's under a pen name, Jess Sinclair. It's called Unbreaking Blue. I'm really excited about that book, um, kind of the, the book of my heart. So I really enjoyed writing it and I'm excited to see that come out. Uh, and then kind of waiting to see what's going to happen as far as a follow-up to Carol at Pennington Manor or not. Trish? Um, my website is trishesden.com, and you can pretty much follow all the, find links to everything on there. I'm active on Twitter, uh, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, I'm super excited. My next book, my series, The Wealth of Deception, is coming out in April. Reviews are starting to come in. It's up on NetGalley right now. Um, I just, I'm, I'm ex really excited about the book because I think it, uh, I think there's some nice devious stuff that happens in it. So <laughs> I, 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 I'm kind of antsy for the next couple of months here. <laughs> well, that was a good tease. I want to thank um, each of our authors, Connie Berry, Cordy Abbott, Tracy Gardner, and Trish Esden for taking time to come and visit with The Poison Pen. And I'd like to thank those tuning in for joining us for another virtual author event at The Poison Pen Bookstore. I hope to see you next time. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.